Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we are recording today in the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut, like we do each and every week. And I'm joined by my friends, like I am every week, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Why do we start with you, Glenn? Glenn Sunshine, professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow of uh, the Colson Center for Christian World. Tom Price, I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist and teach both, both as adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm C.R. Wiley, I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester and author of The Household and the War for the Cosmos, which is available for pre-order on Amazon. Well, anyway, I uh, want to bring some folks uh, up to speed on a few things. One is we have our new sound recording equipment, uh, but we're not using it today. And the reason we're not using it today is we don't know how. It's that simple. We, we've got uh, my son-in-law back from Madagascar. He's a professional audio engineer, but he got in at about 1 o'clock in the morning with his wife from Madagascar last night. And he was uh, not really functional yet when I left the house today. <laughs> anyway, he's going to be helping us out with learning how to use it, and we're looking forward to great things. But uh, probably for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be using the old standard stuff that we've been using. But we are in the back room today, so hopefully things aren't quite as dist- distracting as they were last time. Anyway, uh, also, we're, uh, as you know, glad to be part of the FLF network. Uh, our, our podcasts are now being uh, uploaded every Thursday on the FLF network, and we're very happy for the response that we received uh, to, uh, to, the, to the first show. The second show went up today, so we don't know how people uh, have responded to that yet, but we'll probably get some feedback soon. And uh, related to that, we're working on a new logo, a new look for, for the podcast to kind of help us with this transition, kind of as a, a landmark, so to speak. And we're looking at a few different designs. You may have seen some of those designs uh, being floated on Facebook and uh, different pages there. Uh, one of the ones that... that we posted just today, I posted just today, was shared with uh, me by somebody. It wasn't one that I made, but it was just great. It was the Thug Pug, and uh, <laughs> it's a pug's life as in thug's life. <laughs> anyway, if you get a chance to see that one, um, you'll know what I'm talking about. And we may actually use that, uh, but we've taken a liking to it. <laughs> anyway, so that's that. Well, today, uh, as we discuss the subject of the day, it's my day. And what I'd like to do is uh, introduce our listeners to something that I find very, uh, well, uh, attractive, the idea of the blue-collar intellectual. Now, I know that we uh, can think of uh, intellectuals as, uh, as an effete set, you know, people who, you know, do what they do in ivory towers, don't get their hands dirty, uh, and then we can also sort of consider people who do work with their hands to be, uh, well, less than well-developed intellectually. Uh, we, we can appreciate perhaps the f- fact that they work hard and they, uh, you know, put in, you know, a lot of uh, hard li- uh, uh, work uh, to earn a living. But we don't often put people together or to put these two kinds of people together in a single person. Uh, a person who works with his hands, but also reflects on what he's doing, and even more than that, reflects on the nature of reality and, and truth. And I want to introduce uh, folks today, and I've already talked to Tom and Glenn about these guys, but I want to introduce people uh, in our listening audience to a couple of authors that, who have been inspiring to me. Uh, one of them is a fellow named Matthew Crawford. And Matthew Crawford is an author of a book entitled Shop Class of Soulcraft. And it's a subtitle is An Inquiry into the Value of Work. And it was actually a New York Times bestseller. It's published by Penguin. And this guy is a guy I think I may have mentioned once or twice in, the, in earlier podcasts. But uh, he uh, is a guy that I can identify with at a, at a couple of levels, a few levels. One is that he uh, is actually a, uh, an academic but he is also an electrician and a guy who works on motorcycles for a living. And he's got a fascinating background. He was a child of a couple of hippies and academics in Berkeley, California, of all places. And uh, now, when you're the child of hippies 
and uh, intellectuals. What do you do to rebel? <laughs> you know, what, what, what's, what's the approach to rebellion that you take? You know, do you grow your hair long? <laughs> well, no, that's not going to work. Start wearing tie-dye? You know, <laughs> and that doesn't work either. Well, so there was a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where he was facing exactly that problem. <laughs> and the conclusion was he picked up some albums of Muzak <laughs> and he played them really softly. <laughs> so now Muzak, for folks who don't know, that's elevator music. <laughs> well, Matthew Crawford did something even more radical. He subscribed to Soldier of Fortune. <laughs> Started wearing combat boots and got into uh, working with his hands. <laughs> now, what's, what's sort of the rest of the story is, uh, is you know, he has this interesting start. He's pulling engines, working on them. His parents can't relate to him. He's not sure he wants to, re to relate to them. And uh, he does go off to Chicago to get his Ph.D. in philosophy, though. <laughs> ends up going to Washington, D.C. to work in a think tank. And just uh, the experience of the think tank and some of his other experiences in corporate world just just, uh, just left him wanting, to, you know, or left him sort of longing to get back to, to what he knew in, in his younger, or in his, in his younger self or with his younger self, which is working with his hands. So he opened up a... Uh, a motorcycle repair shop and uh, became an, a, a faculty member at the University of Virginia. And apparently he's got an arrangement there that allows him to do both. And then he writes best-selling books. <laughs> but uh, so there is uh, Matthew B. Crawford. And what I'd like to do is read to you a couple of things from Shop Classes Soulcraft that I think uh, will be a, a good sort of a launching pad for conversation. And what, what uh, Crawford is getting at is that when you work with your hands, you can't just sort of live in your head because you're, you're actually working with a, with a reality outside of yourself that requires you to master it and master yourself in order to master it, but also be informed by it. And this gets to some of the themes that we've talked about, uh, the fact that many people just don't seem to... Uh, have an openness to what the world tells them about itself. They want the world to just simply be responsive to their own, you know, uh, whims, will, desires. What even when it comes down to, comes to to the to the to their own embodied existence. So here's a quote uh, from this opening chapter entitled "A Brief Case for the Useful Arts," and this is page 15 of Shop Class's Soulcraft. And he says here. Quote, the satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been, made, have been known... Let me, let me start again. The satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. They seem to relieve him of the felt need to offer chattering interpretations of himself, to vindicate his worth... He can simply point. The building stands. The car now runs. The lights are on. Boasting is what a boy does because he has no real effect on the world. Now, another uh, statement that I find fascinating uh, has to do with this whole matter of kind of learning what the world is all about, learning, you know, uh, from the world, learning from your from the world that you work with or your materials. And this is from page uh, 21 from the, of the same chapter, Brief Case for the Useful Arts. Quote, From its earliest practice, craft knowledge has entailed knowledge of the ways of one's materials, that is, knowledge of their nature, acquired through disciplined perception. At the beginning of the Western tradition, Sophia, wisdom, meant skill for Homer, the technical skill of a carpenter, for example. So uh, when you, as I've noted, have to work with the world as you find it, you discover that it, it, it is full of uh, uh, sort of intrinsic qualities that just don't do what you want. They, they, it, those qualities 
uh, are to be worked with. They, they present you with sort of the grain of the, of the world. And you can try to work against the grain or work with the grain. And consequently, the world informs you. It's not just simply subject to you. Anyway, those are a couple of quotes from, from Matthew Crawford. It's, it's, you know, I don't think it's just a matter of sheer accident that the eternal Logos himself, when he became incarnate, was a carpenter. Yeah. Um, there's a, theo- a lot of theological insight there I think we could kind of unpack. Um, but I was, I was uh, reading Jacques Maritain, um, who did a lot of reflection. He was a Catholic philosopher, but he did a lot of reflection on art from scholastic understanding. And, uh, and one of his uh, works on, uh, where he kind of went into some depth with this, he, he kind of was talking about the difference, of course, between um, speculative thinking versus the kind of practical thinking that's involved with the arts, and he would include craft and art almost in the same thing. So what you do with your hands, whether it's it's um, you know it, it's kind of whether you're working on motorcycles or you're you're building a ship or painting a painting. Um, all of these things are tied to this kind of practical way of relating to the world. But in this practical way, he, he kind of ma- said they made it another distinction. There was the issue of doing. There was the, uh, the other aspect of making. We've talked about the practon and, and the different poiesis. Um, and so with doing, it had to do more with, with what the modern world has taken, um, uh, sort of art and, and technology. Um, to basically be the way in which we, we exercise our will on things. But the making emphasis was the product. And the product was connected to not simply the imposition of meaning or this is something that is useful to us or doing for us, but is actually the product itself. And the product's whole relation, your whole relationship to the, the material you're dealing with and to what you're, is being made out of it and then what is made out of it. And so there, there is this um, different kind of c- connectedness than just simply doing. And um, I, I'm thinking of like Doug Jones, the, the Welsh, I think it's David Jones, I believe, the Welsh poet, who, um, sort of modern Welsh, Welsh poet, and he kind of had a spiritual crisis uh, at a certain point um, in the, because he saw modernity, basically he called it the break, and this was the place in which we've talked about before where this kind of um, technology has made everything emphasize simply its use, the imposition of our will onto something. And he said this has destroyed his work as a poet, and then he did he worked with art as well, and he also did a lot of inscribing and carving kind of work. Um, and uh, he said this has destroyed it. He said the light bulb, for example has taken away all the ability to do my work as a poet and refer to light because it always turns it simply to use rather than the deep symbolic connectedness it has to sun, all you know, the creation itself. And one of the big reflective points was exactly the same point is that, that, that nature that we have to work with with our hands, it provides that limit. And that limit is what allows for its, what he would call, you know, symbolic surplus. All of the meaning that the reality has been created to have in it is allowed to do all these amazing things even within that limit that it places on us. Mm-hmm. So it has, it, it, it serves as a limit to, to our wants, whims, and wishes. It it forces us to conform to what it is as a reality, and it forms us to be shaped by it, but in that process it directs us towards its being created by the Creator, which which has instilled it with a certain kind of meaning, purpose, and ends which we're allowed to participate in unfolding and creating objects of beauty. This this brings a couple things to mind. One is uh, Tolkien's famous uh, essay or, adult, or, or uh, address on fairy stories. We talked about subcreation, yeah. And of course, to be a subcreator, you need to be, uh, you know, beneath the creator. And so there's a creator who makes a world, and then you take the materials that you've been given by the creator, and you create sub creations, sub worlds. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think that perhaps this voluntarism and this sort of mm-hmm. this sort of uh, a denaturing of nature has 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 done to us is it, is it given is it given the false impression that the that the best place you can be if you want to be a creative person is in a zone where there are no restrictions, 
no constraints. That's actually not the way it works. The most creative people uh, actually thrive in environments where they have limitations. So, like, if you talk to, I've got friends who are architects, and I wrote a a piece for Sacred Architecture with my good friend David Stocker, and, you know, he and I have talked about the fact that that an architect who's given just a a sort of like a, like a, like a plowed out over a wheat field, it's just flat as a pancake or whatever. Uh, and there are no sort of uh, topological challenges or a blank sheet of paper. You know, what you've got at that point is nothing to work off. So it's because you have constraints, challenges, that your creative energies are channeled. Hmm. Like, I, I love this example. We're drinking some uh, alcoholic beverages right now. <laughs> For those of you who are out there in uh, Pugcast land, yes, it is true. We are drinking. (laughs) But I uh, was fascinated to learn that it's actually illegal to show someone drinking a beer in a beer commercial. Were you aware of this? I did not know that. I did not know that. Now, what has that done? Like, I've seen... Uh, what beer commercials looked like before the law was passed. And they are as boring as boring can be. You get a guy, picks up a beer, and says, Mmm, this is good. <laughs> and he drinks. And then he sets it down and says, Boy, that was even better than I thought it would be. And that's as far as it goes. Now we have taste better, less filling. Taste, you know, taste great, less filling. We've got you know, <laughs> every kind, of, kind of crazy angle that you can, you can pursue in order to capture the attention. And, and the beer is almost... It's almost like a secondary. It's like a it's a part of the background. Yeah. But what it, what's being sold is sort of fun and a, and you know mm. a, a life of, of, of pleasure and, and so forth. But what 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 the constraint drove the the ad writers to do, in part, it, it, you know, I'm not saying this is the whole story, but in part, it drove them to you know think through how do we make this. How do we sell this when you can't actually show anybody enjoying it or actually drinking it? <laughs> yeah, I want to take it in a bit of a different direction. When I was listening to Crawford, there were several different things that, here's a shot, historical things that popped into ah, my head. History. Um, one of them was... Far be it from you, Glenn, to bring up history. <laughs> yes. Well, one, one of them was a medieval scholastic mm. theologian by the name of Hugh of St. Victor. Ah, there oh, we go. Okay. Yeah, he reflected And Hugh of St. Victor spent a fair amount of time discussing the trades uh, crafts as a form of useful knowledge. Um, I don't think it's an accident that Athena, the goddess of wisdom, was also the one who created crafts in Greek mythology. And so you you see this in Hugh of St. Victor as he's talking about these as a different kind of knowledge, but one that is good and holy and valuable and given by God. Right, right. Um, I, when he was talking about understanding your materials, that that just screams Michelangelo at me, who talked about what he did when he was carving a statue wasn't creating he wasn't creating the statue, he was freeing it. Yes, it was right. already in the material and all he was doing was freeing it. Right, right. And and the interesting thing about this is well if you look even shipbuilding, which I believe you mentioned um, at one point, ships historically were each of them was custom made. You had you had a a tree trunk basically that you would turn into the keel, the central rib that runs down. Well, not really rib, but the central line that runs down sure. the bottom of the ship, and you'd put the ribs coming off of that. Sure. So each one was custom designed. That only began to change with the Dutch in about the 16th century when they came up with a standardized design for ships. In English, we call this a flyboat. Okay. Um, And what they would do then is that the design was standardized so that they could pre-manufacture the parts and warehouse them. Mm. So that if a ship came in, was damaged, they'd just be able to go in. They wouldn't have to custom build the parts. They'd be able to go in and grab the parts and and repair it. Or if they needed a new ship, they could just go to the warehouse and pull out what they needed. So actually, the idea of mass production predates Eli Whitney by several hundred years. Yeah. But it's no accident that that is happening right at the beginning of the move toward modernity. Mm-hmm. As at the very, very beginnings of the shift toward what we call the modern world, you're beginning to see standardization. Mm-hmm. You're beginning to see all of these things that end up ultimately uh, leading in the direction Tom was talking about. Right. Hmm. 
You know, when it comes to the whole matter of um, this whole this whole discussion of wisdom and practical use, getting back to Athena, uh, I think that when we say think about someone, well, we think about classical philosophy and its hierarchies of knowledge or wisdom, and the idea that you know the trades. Uh, or manual skill is further down the pyramid, so to speak. We can, I think, uh, impute to the writers maybe things that weren't actually the case. And what I mean by that is this. Those guys, people like Aristotle, Plato, and so forth, they had an acquaintance with the physical world that, generally speaking, intellectuals today don't have. So I think about, even in the course of my own lifetime, I'm related to some people who are fairly well accomplished Academically, uh, Ralph Earl, for example, who was the uh, chairman of the NIV Translating Committee, New International Version of the Bible. He's a family member. He's my wife's uncle. Hmm. So I remember going over to his house. He's, he's been gone for a while. He died in the, hmm. in the 90s. But uh, he was a fun guy. Uncle Ralph, we called him. I've got half a dozen books signed to Chris from Uncle Ralph. <laughs> and uh, he grew up on a farm in Rhode Island. So here was a guy whose own personal life uh, had you know included a childhood, you know, of milking cows and shoveling manure. <laughs> you know, not what we normally think about when we think about a man who was included in the who's who of intellectuals in the world, published by Oxford University, and he was. Yeah, yeah. Marla's my wife's grandfather was born in Canada and in poverty circumstances, went on to get degrees from Harvard, Yale, and B's. Uh, BU, not BC, I was going to say BC, but BU, and studied under, you know, uh, know, uh, Christopher Stendhal and Paul Tillich and Hmm. all these guys, wrote Bible commentaries and so Hmm. forth. I remember going to visit him after he retired. He retired like three times. The schools (laughs) kept bringing him back. I remember visiting him in in Nashville, Tennessee. And he was, the thing he wanted to show me most that he had all these degrees on the wall in Latin that I couldn't read. <laughs> the thing he was most excited about was the latest piece of furniture he had just made. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me show you this. <laughs> so he was a guy, these were these were guys who knew the physical world firsthand, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> firsthand with their hands. Yeah. But at the same time, they had a very well developed uh, uh, aesthetic sense, uh, very well developed, uh, you know. You know, a capacity to engage in abstraction. Obviously, they were translators of the Bible. They knew their Greek. They knew their Hebrew. So, but the, that's a kind of intellectual we don't see much anymore. Well, you know, it's important to remember if you go back to the ancient Greeks, Socrates um, was a warrior. He fought in battles. I mean, it wasn't his profession, but he did that <laughs> because everybody did that. That's right. Um, they, they built a reproduction trireme, one of the Greek warships with three banks of oars. And they know how long it took a trireme to travel from point A to point B during the Peloponnesian War or whatever. They put people on the trireme, volunteers on it, and they actually were doing things like measuring their consumption of oxygen you know, while, while they were working this. And what they concluded is there aren't enough Olympic-level athletes in the world today to man triremes to do what the ancient sailors did routinely. Yeah, yeah. It's like when you hear about baseball, and you hear, well, they're pulling them out after 75 pitches. Back in my day, they never pulled a guy out. He'd go 200 pitches. Yeah, that kind of but, but, you know, the, the fact is that the, these were people who, e- even your most elite person, yeah. had no choice. They That's had it. to engage in physical labor, and the level of conditioning that yeah. they had, the elite-level athletes in ancient Greek would be considered nearly superhuman today. Well, yeah, and, and, and we tend to think we're so much more sophisticated and better than they were right, right. physically, but it, it's, just, it, it's just not true. And it was even true of their philosophers. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, these were guys who were acquainted with the physical world. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's definitely the case. And, you know, when we, sometimes I'll, you know, you'll hear about attempts to sort of reintegrate things through a kind of, I don't know, uh, standardized program of, you know, mm-hmm. spending a little time here and a little time there. But that, that there's almost too much artifice to that. You know, there's something about just the challenge of hand-to-mouth 
you know, sort of, you know, survival. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of, when you're just trying to dig out an existence, yeah. you know, and you're just that, you know, you're just like a hair's breadth from, from starvation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a way of getting you moving, you know, <laughs> that nothing else can get, can do. And you're right, I mean, these guys, now, when we think about the ancient world, I think we think about, you know, Roman at Zenith, when you had these vast estates where you had this landed gentry where people were soft and effete and, and so forth. But those folks looked back, you know, to Cincinnati, to the, to, you know, to, to you know, if, if folks aren't familiar with Cincinnati, so Cincinnati was a patrician in Rome, it saved Rome during a, during a period in which Rome looked like it was sure to be defeated and conquered. Cincinnati was a kind of a gentleman farmer, kind of like a George Washington, you know, and when he retired, or he was made dictator of Rome, which mm-hmm. means that his, you know, he had a complete power. Uh, and after he uh, helped to save Rome uh, and won the war, he voluntarily laid down his dictatorship and went back to the farm. <laughs> you know, and so all of the, the and, and this wasn't a guy who was like directing, you know, thousands of slaves on his farm. This was a guy who was actually out plowing the field, the field. himself. <laughs> he was the savior of Rome. So uh, anyway, that. And that's, by the way, that's why they called George Washington the American Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah most people don't know Cincinnati is named after Washington. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't know that. that so. <laughs> the other guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Well, it's, it, yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, I'll kind of take this in, a, in another uh, place uh, because uh, I think it's always relevant. But um, Protestant, the Protestant part of the Protestant vision was a reconnectedness of vocation yes. outside mm. of what it considered to be. Uh, something that was a hierarchy that developed that was more in let me put it another way some some of the critique of Luther and others was that um, Christianity um, had not weaned itself off of enough of sort of some of the pagan sources that it, it, it kind of was refashioning and shaping to such that that sort of all the created order goods, like marriage and things like this, were seen on second and yeah. third level compared right. to like celibacy and, and right. you know this eschatological, almost Gnostic otherworldliness. And so one of the things that was re, you know, recaptured and, uh, re, and brought back into you know, the theological arena was a strong emphasis on the ordinary, which some will critique Protestantism as giving a kind of autonomous secular space. I don't think it's true at all. I I think it was trying to actually hold in place the the fact that um, creation, although um, itself uh, filled with um, its uh, ability to, to be assigned to the transcendent, um, nevertheless, in its createdness, is the place of, of mediation of mm-hmm. divine presence, truth, beauty, and goodness, so that our connectedness to it, our working it, our, our hands-on, are actually the place in which we're, we are both dealing with the good gift that creation is and its surplus that helps us survive and nourish ourselves and flourish in our creatureliness, but also in that, that, that pointing to its, its higher fulfillment in the kingdom of God and ultimately yeah. Yeah. in eschaton. Well, Luther would argue that, that all call them non-criminal uh, professions are sacred because they can be done as acts of love for neighbor. That's what they should be. Right. And, uh, you know, he commented at one point, the Christian cobbler doesn't make Christian shoes by putting little crosses on them. Okay. He does his work by making excellent shoes. Unless you buy the, your shoes at the Christian bookstore, then <laughs> right. you'll find you see crosses and, and, on but your there's shoes. A great point. <laughs> and, and, and there is the problem. <laughs> well, well there, there, that is the problem. That's that's what I think Tyson, what we mentioned last week, was talking about reshuffling the the chairs on the deck. Um, I, um, it was. Uh, Rowan Williams um, wrote a book, Grace and Necessity, a theological sort of analysis of art. And um, one of the things he actually brings up is this very point. One of the things that Christianity actually does is frees art to be art. Yes. Art doesn't have to be catechesis. It doesn't have to serve some other utilitarian end. It has the ability to actually be connected to the good, the true, and the beautiful in Christ in a way where you don't have to have it serving some other purpose. It has its own... Yeah, it doesn't have to be propaganda. It doesn't have to be propaganda. And that allows it, the good shoe to be 
a really good shoe, which actually serves uh, purposes and ends in a way that also connects them to the goodness of the shoe that is there. So, the, and you think of good craftsmanship, or you think of uh, a, you know a beautifully made knife or something that that was right. was crafted at a time where the people were connected to it. Is that becomes a, you know a thing in its a beautiful thing in itself. Right. as well as all these other purposes it has for it. So there, there is something, and in what you do is you actually see almost the love relationship that the maker has to the material mm-hmm. because they're investing it with their, their gift, but they're pulling out of it, and, and that really the, uh, the material it's working with is giving its gift to them. Mm-hmm. And you're almost having a communion go on between creature and creature in, in light of the creator, which is uh, something that is good in its own sake. It's a joy in its own sake. It's a, it's a beauty in its own sake. And I think in that sense, it's a small way in which this whole communal picture that creation has with the creator is something that creatures have with creatures and the creaturely. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that drives me crazy is that when you look at depictions of the past or if you're doing medieval fantasies or anything like that, yeah. everything is depicted as being really kind of crude. You know, you get your, your biblical epics, you know, your movies, and everybody is in undyed cloth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. We actually have cloth samples going back to pretty close to the time of Solomon mm-hmm. in mines, mm-hmm. which means that these are not elite people, and they're colorful, woven cloth. Right. Yeah. Pe- people have been interested in... In craftsmanship, in beauty, in elegance, all of these things yeah. forever. And perhaps maybe and they, they, they were even more than we are, in a, in a good sense, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because they understood how beauty reflected sort of a cosmic uh, reality uh, that informed it. So it wasn't just, like when people think about beauty today, they think of it as kind of mere ornament. Ornamentation. You mm-hmm. don't think of it as some sort of re- a reflection of the, of the the world that got me. Well, yeah, my favorite example of this: if you go to the Cloisters, which is part of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that does medieval art, okay. Okay, they have the blue set of unicorn tapestries. Okay, okay. the blue set is probably the best known. Um, dark blue background, all kinds of flowers and plants, mm-hmm. and then a story told over it. Um, it's the story of the hunt of the unicorn. Not, oh, yeah, yeah. Not, entirely, yeah, not entirely relevant, but one of them, these were made in the 1400s. Mm-hmm. One of them got damaged, probably water damage, and they restored it in the early 1900s. You can spot the restoration instantly when you walk into the room, because rather than a blue background, it's brown. It's faded. Or and one of the hunters has a sleeve that just reflects the light completely wrong. Yeah, it's just yeah, shiny. Yeah. And the problem is... A hundred years ago, when they did the restoration, the colors matched. Yeah, The right. modern dyes could not hold their color for wow. a century, wow. whereas the medieval dyes are pushing 600 years. This reminds me of uh, concrete, wow. Roman, Roman concrete. Roman concrete, yeah. You know, we, we still can't figure out how they did it. It's better than our stuff. Yes. Well, a, a lot better than Actually, they have gotten it now. Oh, they do? <laughs> the key is volcanic ash. Okay. You use that in the concrete, and then if you put it in seawater... It gets stronger year by year by year. It actually increases in strength where modern concrete dis- disintegrates in salt water. Now, the question is, is how did they, how did they kind of arrive at the sort of the insight that this is the stuff we need to use? That would be interesting to uh, yeah. a great field of study. When you almost see that, and, and I mean, I, I remember uh, watching the whole process of chocolate making, and I thought the same thing. How, how much trial and error had to go into this to right. actually produce the kind, and, and you actually see right. the steps. Of, and uh, I, I was uh, reading one time on the way in which I think it Byzantium, they had to, um, there are a lot of these locales in which, this, this may have been near the Hagia Sophia, um, they, they had to actually create waterways to serve the whole place because they had to draw off of the water, but it had to be in a strategic point to watch so that it didn't get invaded and stuff. And apparently, what they created as a water system still not only is is functional and um, you, you know, it, but it's another one of these amazements that how in the world did they even think? Or, think let, of it? Let's go simple. Yeah, iron. Yeah. In order to produce iron in the Iron Age, you have to take a red rock. Yeah. 
You have to put it in a furnace. The furnace is not hot enough to melt the iron out of it. So instead, you get it hot, it turns spongy. (laughs) You then take it out and you wail on it with a hammer for a while to to hammer the slag out of the iron. And oh, by the way, in the process, you've actually produced carbon steel, but we won't talk about that. Who thought of this? Right. And, and the thing well, is, I, I mean, I mean, what kind of person does this? I'm going to take this red rock, put it in, get it hot, and hit it with a hammer. <laughs> but one of the, what, what is this? So one of the things about that is now they have the kind of machinery, but it, it's almost like it, it drops so much pressure and pounds to it. I'm like 600 pounds come down on it to press it out, like when they knife make. How in the world were they? I mean, how much force were they putting on it to get that stuff broken down? It, it, it is stunning that they, yeah, yeah. yeah and what, what it, says, yeah, it says is that our yeah. ancestors were a lot sharper than we assume, mm-hmm. or, that, or we've been led to believe, and that that there, there was probably an iterative process. I my guess is a sort of trial and error over generations, traditions of training. That's right, and yeah. new breakthroughs, and and it dis- and people who discovered things that we don't know their names. We mm-hmm. don't know the names of the people who discovered them, and so we have a, a marvelous patrimony mm-hmm. that we received from our ancestors, and and we ought to be grateful. But instead, what we do is we basically. Uh, we libel them. You know, we, we call them fools. We, we dismiss them as stupid. And I think, they, you know, partially some of the Enlightenment's bias, partially the way technology works, it makes us kind of not think that there was a world, you know, I, I, when I talk to, to my kids, you know, they, they don't, can't quite comprehend what a world was like when you couldn't just reach in your pocket yes. and call someone. Right. Um, think of a world much more different than that. Um, but, but you have these things that kind of create the illusion that um, that that you know that, that that was just the past, and it was you know a right. bunch of you know dark ages or you know right. benighted you know people who just didn't you know they didn't know anything, and really it was the other way around. And it, it also introduces something, and we're kind of recovering this a lot in the theological world after after modernity. Right. But the imp- the significance of of schools and traditions, not not tradition in the capital T sense that it's the same right. binding level as divine revelation and right. scripture. But the way in which those are carriers of a deposit of wisdom, and it's similar to any institution. It's anyone who just participates in the, the institutions of a created order, whether it's marriage or this, has brought with them a bunch of wisdom that you can't just right. teach to someone because they've been formed similar to the way uh, yeah. this and work is. And that's why is. when I, when I uh, talk to people who are you know, coming to me from, to be married... And they say, I don't do the custom wedding vow thing. Yeah. If you want the Unitarians, they're right over there. You know? <laughs> and they'll, they'll do whatever you want. That's right. so, you know, we do the old-fashioned vows here, including obey. Yeah. We don't edit that part out. And, uh, and no one's ever you know, sort of backed out on me. But I wonder how many of them actually follow through with Maybe. the vows. But, but the point is, is that you didn't invent marriage, and we're not going to customize it to your whims. Yeah. And, and your prejudices, or not even prejudices, but your your biases. Yeah. Anyway, this is actually a good segue yeah. to the second <laughs> of my uh, blue-collar intellectuals. By the way, the, the term blue-collar intellectual I picked up from Daniel Flynn, hmm. who wrote a book entitled Blue-Collar Intellectuals. Hmm. And w- uh, in that book, uh, Daniel Flynn uh, identifies a number of intellectuals who either had a sort of blue-collar childhood and he, and, he, and, he, and he identifies people like uh, Mortimer Adler, yeah. you know, as an example of a blue-collar intellectual. Who interestingly came around at the end of his life, both to through through to, uh, through Aristotle, Aquinas, to a full embrace of, of Christianity. Yep, and of yeah. course he was a Jewish guy. But uh, but there are a number of others. But one of the people I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, in that book is Eric Hoffer. Yeah. Now, Eric Hoffer is a fascinating character. Eric Hoffer uh, won. Well, let me give you the uh, the little. This is from his book, uh, The True Believer, which is probably his best known book. So this is the this is the snippet, the, the bio on the back. Eric Hoffer, 1902 to 1983, was a self educa- was self educated and lived the life of a drifter through the 1930s. <laughs> After Pearl Harbor, he worked as a longshoreman in San Francisco for 25 years. He's the author of 10 books, including The Passion and State of Mind, The Ordeal of Change, and The Temper of Our Time. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom hmm. in 1983 by Ronald Reagan and died later that year. 
And if you want to see a fascinating interview, Eric Severide interviewed Eric Hoffer, hmm. and you can you can actually find the interview on YouTube. Just type in Eric Hoffer. Now, Eric Hoffer was German, and he still has a very thick German accent in the interview he, he, he's uh, in, you know, engaged in with Eric Severide, and which means that he knew two things very well, Nazism and communism. Hmm. And what he's doing in The True Believer is he's looking at the nature of mass movements. Hmm. And one of the things that he's noted, or he, he's famous for noting, is that when you sort of uh, create the blank page when you when you lose sight of the past, when you don't have any way of connecting to transcendent values, you become very susceptible to manipulation and you become part of a mass culture that can be dominated and controlled by the demagogue. And so this particular passage that I'm about to read um, is, uh, you know, related to those, those, those things. So this is from The Desire for Change. This is the uh, first chapter in uh, The True Believer. Hmm. He says, uh, When hopes and dreams are loose in the streets, it is well for the timid to lock doors, hmm. shutter windows, and lie low until the wrath has passed. Hmm. Now, that's a fascinating connection it makes between desire and wrath. I don't think we normally connect those two things. Mm-hmm. But what happens, I think he's, imp- he's imp- implying, is that when a, pe- a person's desires are let loose, when they lose the constraints, the constraints we were talking about you know, earlier with regard to tradition, material reality, <laughs> what's possible and what's not, mm-hmm. uh, instead of having creativity and, and aspirations channeled by f- realities outside oneself, one uh, attributes to any constraint malintent. Hmm. You, you, you say, why am I not able to get what I want? Hmm. There must be someone to blame. Hmm. The Jews, yeah. the, you know, the, the, the bourgeoisie, whatever. You know, there becomes some group white of people. Male. White males, the <laughs> patriarchy, whatever. You know, this is really Hinduism. This is Shiva. Okay. Shiva, who is the god of destruction, yeah. but also the god of creation. Interesting. So, so in order to create, you have to destroy first. Right, mm-hmm. right. That's interesting. I never made that connection, that, but I think that's a good one. Hmm. Here's, here's, another, uh, here's another thing that ties more you know, into the demagogue, and, and I know you've talked about the demagogue uh, in relation to, to these very things, Glenn. But here's a quote again from Eric Hoffer. They must also have an extravagant conception of the prospects and potentialities of the the future. Finally, they must be wholly ignorant of the difficulties involved in uh, their vast undertaking. Experience is a handicap. The men who started the French Revolution were wholly without political experience. The same is true of the Bolsheviks, Nazis, and revolutionaries in Asia. They didn't. So, in other words, he's tongue in cheek when he says, you know, experience is yeah. a liability uh, or a handicap. What he's saying is that when you have experience, you understand the limits. Yeah. You know, and when you think about like, you know, uh, Edmund Burke or Russell Kirk or other luminaries in the conservative tradition, it's all about limits. But they're not limits imposed by a mean, you know, sort of upper class. Or, yeah, yeah. They're limits imposed by reality. Yes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> there's, yeah. Just, there's only so much you can actually get done or accomplish. Yeah. yeah. Because reality doesn't come to us like silly putty. It doesn't just exist to, to receive our impression. You remember silly putty, right? Yeah, like yeah. you get silly putty. Remember, remember the silly putty commercials where you'd get the silly putty and you put it on the newspaper? This is back in the days when I guess they used cheap ink or whatever. <laughs> and you could like uh, have the image from the newspaper appear on the silly putty. Yeah. Right. So the idea is that you know, the reality is able yeah. to receive whatever impression we want to make on it. Yeah. It's not and, the case. And then with silly putty, the other thing you could do is then stretch it. Yes. Distort the image, turn it into whatever shape you want it to be. Right. Well, right. One, one right. of the things I, I often find in in, uh, in in some of the academic environments I've been in um, is exactly this continuation of of this kind of belief, this naive belief that just shows how cut off of a lot of reality a lot of these people are. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think of a lot of the th- the ideals I had as a teenager, for example. You know, I was going to be this, I was going to do this. Or, you know, you've got all sure. these naive things. Oh, why can't, you know, you get this? I, you know, I'm ready for it. I know how to do it. 
and then you bump up against a few of the hits of reality and all of a sudden you start to get hammered down to to a place of sobriety in your interpretation <laughs> but I've been in situations with with academics even recently um, where I've listened to their conversations and, and some of these are you know right at retirement age and it's as if they had never learned that lesson mm-hmm. they really think I mean their their interpretation of the world is such that is so far from what it means to actually that I think they really just live on campus mm-hmm. in, 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 in I'm, I'm sure know, they do I'm sure they do and again <laughs> not not all are like that but, right, they, but right. there is still pockets of that that I that, that I encounter right. there and I don't I don't even know how to really enter in at a certain place because right. there isn't a a reality frame of reference. It, it, at this point, it just becomes this. They, they've created a picture. This prick, pick, picture's a bubble and a buffer, right. and and anything that bumps up against it, it you know, it, it confirms it. Yes. And uh, where reality. Where, where, where I see that happening most often is they will accept the idea of physical reality. There are there are certain limitations. Yeah. Usually in the form of the Earth cannot sustain more than a certain number of people. Because yeah, that's right. That, but that's where right. where they don't accept constraints is on human nature. Yeah. The people in good, their mind are in. Infinitely malleable. Yes. You can turn them into anything. Yes. Yeah. And so, to pursue their vision of a better world, and this is true in politics as well. Yeah. Um, to pursue a vision of the better world, all you have to do is shape the people in your own image. Right. And it's and, and kind of uh, so cider. Yeah. I'll take another one too. Great. Yeah, this makes this this is a good time to start wrapping things up, I think, because I know where you're going with the next show, Glenn. You're gonna be talking about how do you do with this stuff to a degree. You know, it, but I you know, I think that sometimes a couple of thoughts, and this is kind of a segue into the next show. Uh, in Paralandra there's this point in which this, you know, the C.S. Lewis character or the Tolkien character, Ransom, is on Venus, and Weston is there. Weston is there to be the Satan figure, to tempt the Venetian Eve. She resists the temptation. But, but Ransom is there to make sure that Weston doesn't have forever to work on her. <laughs> and, at one, you know, and initially, if I remember correctly, the Ransom character you know, engages in debate, argumentation. But he comes to a point where he says, I'm getting, this is not getting anywhere because this is not about logic. This is not about reason. Well, and this he's losing. The, that's right, and he's losing. But the, and, the, and the character that he's interacting with is not bound by reason himself. Mm. He's, he's completely free to manipulate mm. truth and facts and stuff like that. So what's he do? He says, I gotta kill this guy. Mm. I gotta fight him. And so that's what ends up happening. He has to fight. Now, another scene, and I know this is very grim, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but think about the children of Israel. They've been delivered from Egypt. They've seen the wonders of, 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 of you know, the, the, the God of their deliverance. They've seen the plagues. They've uh, witnessed the, the Red Sea opening up. And the first opportunity they get, what do they do? They you know, melt down their gold and they make the golden calf. And the next thing you know, Thank you. you've got... Well, we got a bad scene, an ugly scene. So, what's the punishment? The punishment is to uh, wander in the wilderness for as long as it takes for an entire generation to die out. Hmm. Think about that. Um, we may be the unfortunate uh, in the unfortunate situation of, of being uh, the people who have to wait for an entire generation to die out for. The, their dreams and their illusions, you know, fed by a, you know Woodstock and whatever, you know, to just simply go away, so that we can so that we can see a new group of people who are dealing with the legacy that that you know, poisoned the legacy that those folks left behind, uh, who don't have any sort of emotional commitment to it. You know, they're not invested in it in any way to say. You know what? That was all pretty dumb. <laughs> Didn't work. You know. So that's that's a couple of, uh, of observations that you know have to do with reality bites. Reality strikes back. You know. <laughs> kind of 
Anyway, nature uh, bats last. <laughs> I like that, and, and nature always clears the bases. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a, probably a, la, a last. Uh, yeah, why don't we wrap up here? Why don't you, why don't quote you? on this. Um, back during my uh, when I was in graduate school at Duke University, Stanley Hauerwas was the ethics professor, and he was he was a notorious, and he has said many notorious things. Um, one that was memorable to me, uh, he, just for a little background, he's a bricklayer's son, and he's very, he's very aware that he comes from a blue-collar working-class background, and even during his academic years at Yale and everything, he said, I will outwork anyone. He would go work in a factory or something along that line all day, come back, do his academic work. And he used to talk about his academic work. He said, one thing I have learned from the background I have is I can outwork all of the people around me. Um, but, but secondly, he, he said, um, uh, I remember him literally engaging a student. A student was asking certain ethical questions in relationship to sort of sexual license and, and, and mm. you know, sexual immorality in society. And he said, those issues and those questions come from people that don't have to work for a living. Yes. And there's a very profound point there is that the, the more this leisure space opens up to where it almost is all dominant, mm-hmm. you start to have these kinds of, this, this influx of temptation that doesn't happen in a world in which you have to sustain life. Right. And where it's life okay has to have spaces. one Oscar Wilde. Yes. But when everyone is Oscar Wilde, you've got hell. You've got hell. Yeah. Any thoughts, Glenn, as we wrap up? Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that we've come full circle. Matthew Crawford is talking about how you have to work with the materials. As a craftsman, you have to know your materials. You have to develop an intuitive sense of them to know what is or is not possible with the particular piece of wood or stone or whatever that you're working with. Um, What we're talking about here is the same thing, except not a craftsman making an object, but we're talking about people. Right. And you have to understand what is and is not possible, what the limits and constraints are, not just in the nature of a piece of wood, but in the nature of a human being. Right, right. There is a human nature. Yeah. There is a human nature. Anyway, well, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Uh, we'll be back again with you next week. And next week is Glenn's week, and we're looking forward to hearing what Glenn has to talk about. But uh, thank you again, and bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now.